This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hi, Caroline. Hi. We're jumping back into history on this episode. Um... Because last week really brought me down with its its very recent murders. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a it's a very interesting story. It's just de- it's really sad. Well, uh, sad stories today as well. We are going to cover <laughs> hundreds or nay thousands of murders over the course of human history today. Oh boy! Because I'm giving you a brief history, a, a, a rundown, Caroline, of human sacrifice uh, throughout human civilization. Wow, we're really making our listeners run the the gauntlet of depression this holiday season, aren't we? Well, Tarar was a fun story. Yeah, I guess. Next week we got to do something upbeat, though. I guess, t- yeah, Tarar didn't have like a nice end. We got to do something stupid. No happy ending for for Tarar. No. Uh, Caroline, people have been sacrificing human beings to gods for as long as there have been people and gods, uh, as far as I can tell. Uh, Certainly the practice goes back further than writing does, and so we can only guess at the origins of human sacrifice. We do know uh, that some ancient civilizations did sacrifice humans, because we have art uh, representing the the practice, right? Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the ancient Minoans who ruled the island of Crete from 2000 to 1100 BC, uh, worshipped a mother goddess figure of some kind uh, alongside others. She had kind of like a boy, like a like a handsome young boy who hung out with her, kind of mm. a, a hunter god. But the, the main thing was this mother goddess. And she's like a cougar? Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, which <laughs> I can get behind this religion. Uh, the- we know you love a mature woman, Sean. They were really into the religious rites. We have only pictures of them they didn't write anything down the ancient minoans but we have pictures of some of their rituals they were really into something called bull leaping where people would just vault over a charging bull great um that was religious somehow we, we can't tell what connection it had to the gods exactly but uh, that seemed to feature in the religious holidays a lot which sounds fun um but also minoan ruins contain some of the earliest known evidence of human sacrifice hmm so a site called Anemospelia is believed to be a temple that was in use from around 1800 to 1700 BC. The building is, well, it's hard to tell what exactly it was used for because it was destroyed by an earthquake at some point. Um, but it appears to have been, the most common theory is that it's a shrine. It's a three-room building. And in the largest room, there are these terracotta, like clay feet left on the floor that people assume is part of a statue that used to be standing there. No, it's just a statue defeat. So you've got a big... <laughs> it's I- Quentin Tarantino's uh, summer retreat. 
Uh, but people see a big idol statue and a raised stone platform, and they think, well, this is probably a temple of some kind, right? Mm-hmm. That looks like an altar. And on this apparent altar is the skeleton of a 17-year-old boy, or was when it was discovered, was the sev- skeleton of a 17-year-old boy in a fetal position with a bronze dagger found among his bones. The dagger was 15 inches long and had boars kind of embossed on each side. And, and this was found on the altar? On the altar. So and either they just left him there to rot, or something happened that interrupted their civilization. Well, it was definitely interrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, discoloration on one side of that skeleton, by the way, suggested, at least to the archaeologists, that this person had died from blood loss. Well, um, yeah. Well, it, but the dagger doesn't necessarily mean that he was stabbed with the dagger. It was just kind of found among the bones. It could have been his dagger. Mm. Um, there were three other people in the building. Next was a 28-year-old woman who was left spread eagle on the floor in the same room. And right next to the altar or platform, there was a man in his late 30s whose legs were broken and who had died with his arms outstretched over his head. Mm. So it seems pretty clear that the earthquake hit during whatever was going on here. During this ritual. And everybody was killed. Well, the, the boy on the table might have already been dead, but everybody else was killed by falling debris. Uh, there's one last skeleton in the front hall. Um, it was too badly damaged to get an age or a gender off of maybe a guard or another a priest or something. Mm-hmm. Now, this isn't a definite cut and dried human sacrifice. The boy could have just died in the collapse with everybody else. Maybe it's not a temple, maybe it's a hospital, or he was taking a nap on this comfy stone bed. Mm. Uh, Maybe the dagger is a spearhead that just fell through the ceiling when the roof caved in. Maybe, but I don't think so. Yeah, probably, you know, guy on an altar found with a bloodied dagger, I think we can kind of put two and two together. Now, the complex at Fornu Corifi is even older, 2900 to 2300 BC. God, these are just crazy like times. Like, they're just so far from now, you can't even comprehend them. 2900 almost 5000 years ago. That's wild. Um they believe this ruin is a sanctuary complex, like some kind of a temple, and there are fragments of a human skull that were found in a room along with a hearth and a clear cooking hole and some cooking equipment. And people mm. point to that as evidence of kind of ritual um, cannibalism, which yeah. it might be, might sound like a stretch, but then let me I tell you. I don't know. You, I don't bring my extra skulls around my kitchen if I'm not cooking something. Well, let me tell you about the findings at Nosos, the Minoan capital city, and uh, what's sometimes been called like the oldest metropolis in the world. Mm. Nosos has clear mass burials, including mass burials sometimes of children, that Professor Peter Warren at the British School of Athens says appear to have been carefully butchered. Uh, Yeah, I was going to ask because I I was just listening to something about the the Black Death, as I do... um on my my time off but uh you know there were obviously a lot of mass graves at that time so i was wondering if this could possibly just be a some plague of some sort but um i guess since you're including it probably not yeah warren says uh, in fact the bones of slaughtered sheep were found with those of the children moreover as far as the bones are concerned the children appear to have been in good health Startling as it may seem, the available evidence so far points to an argument that the children were slaughtered, 
and the flesh cooked and possibly eaten in a sacrifice ritual made in the service of a nature deity to assure an annual renewal of fertility. Sometimes it verged <laughs> so, into, a little ironic. Sometimes verged into uh, Australian there. Um, <laughs> Thank God we have fertility. Now let's kill all the children. Well, fertility for the crops. I see. Uh, in the same complex, by the way, there's a house that they call the North House, which contained the bones of at least four apparently healthy children, well, healthy before they were killed, uh, similarly butchered. I mean, I know that in, in ancient rituals, a lot of the time, like, virgins were prized, the, the kind of innocence thing. Um, it made it a especially meaty sacrifice. Sorry to um, make that little joke. But, you know, and they might have killed the children, unfortunately, because they were the best kind of sacrifice to make in their eyes. Well, sacrifices should be painful, right? Yeah. So if slaughtering your livestock, which were very valuable to you, is pleasing to the god, then slaughtering one of your uh, buddies or family members has to be more pleasing to the god. And slaughtering one of your children, uh, I mean, you know, there's there's no bigger sacrifice unless maybe uh, killing yourself, depending on what your priorities are. Yeah, but thank God we have crops to well, feed no children with. Well, yeah, and so they would mix this human blood and possibly animal blood, too, uh, with either the seeds they were going to plant that season or with the soil to ensure that the crops would grow. Um, this was actually still done in, like, classical era Greece, like like the Athenians would uh, make sacrifices to Demeter in the same way, but only with pig blood. Yeah, not, not, not with, with children. Yeah. Um, it wasn't just Europe. In ancient China... Um, the fortress city of Shimao is really amazing. It's an amazing thing. It's in Shangxi province, and it was probably built around 2300 BC. Crazy. It contains a 230-foot-high pyramid, um, which sounds is incredible. That is about half the height of the Great Pyramid. Yeah. But the base of this pyramid is four times the size, so it's a much shallower a oh. wider pyramid. Mm. It's encircled by six miles of ringed, layered walls. And building the walls alone of this massive complex took enough stone to fill 50 Olympic swimming pools. So you got to move all that there somehow. Yeah. And maybe it took a little something extra, too. Aliens? Well, uh, <laughs> no, possibly. <laughs> but uh, what we do know is that 80 human skulls, almost all young girls are carefully arranged in six pits underneath the eastern wall of the city, with the most heads, 24 each, in the two pits closest to the gate. Just heads. Just heads. So that's pointed to as like ritual beheadings to consecrate the wall or make an enchantment, keeping people out, or strengthen the wall. Mm -hmm. You know, have the, have the gods smile on, on your construction project. Mm-hmm. Nothing like a little head to make someone smile. Well, you know, something to make the permits go a little easier. Sure. Uh, human sacrifice was definitely practiced to Hebo, the god of the Yellow River in ancient times. Um, the Yellow River is like the Nile of northern China. Mm -hmm. It's what, the reason there's so much arable farmland there. It's where they get all their crops from. Um, but, and much more so than the Nile, it's also capable of disastrous flooding. That yeah. causes massive damage and loss of life from time to time in the area, especially in ancient times. So for centuries, men and women would be drowned in an attempt to please the river god, Hei Bo. Murder uh, drowned. Yes. 
yeah, this practice peaked in the Shang Dynasty from 1600 to 1050 BC, but it, it kept going until around 400 BC. Uh, the river is very, very long, so there were kind of different local practices. You know, you do it how you want. Uh, but often, the priests in a local county would pick a local teen girl every year to be Habo's bride. And there'd be a big lavish wedding. And she's in a wedding dress and the whole thing. And uh, the aunt, you know, it's like $100 a plate because uh, you know how these things go. And the, I'm sure the mason lights were expensive. <laughs> mason jar lights. Mason jar lights. Um, <laughs> and then they would chuck her in the river and she would drown. Oh, gosh. So, they, I mean, they're assuming they didn't know how to swim. Uh, well, it's a big, surging, charging river. Ah. So swim or not, if you, you get thrown into deep enough, rough enough waters, you're, you're going to drown. And if you're worried about it, you could always tie them up first, I guess. I'm not sure that they, they did that. Um, Jimen Bao of Wei is the official slash legendary hero who's credited with outlawing the practice of this river wife sacrifice. That's good. And this, uh, so this is around 400 BC. Um, really cool story uh, that can't be literally true, but... Uh, supposedly, Zimen Bao came upon a county where they were still doing this sacrificing of the teen girls every year thing. And he's like a government official. Um, and the local priestesses and elders and the corrupt officials in this county would just pocket all of the taxes that they were allegedly raising for this expensive wedding. And then they would hurl a girl into the uh, river every year. So Zimen Bao hears about their local tradition and he goes, great, get me an invite. I want to go to this wedding. <laughs> and on the day... He was like, well, hold on, let me get a look at the bride. You know, I'm the sort of the presiding official here at this point, and I, I think I should make sure everything's okay. He looks at the teen girl, who's obviously weeping and terrified, and he turns to the priestess. And, this ain't a party. This ain't no disco. This ain't no fooling around. Uh, <laughs> so Jimen Bao turns to the priestess and says, this won't do at all. This girl's too ugly. No. Look at the way she's crying and stuff. No, this is, you, we can't, we, we're going to piss off the river god. We're all going to drown if we, um, you know what? You just go and tell the river god that we've got to postpone. And he had her grabbed and chucked into the river. Who? The priestess. Oh, twist. And then a couple minutes go by and Jimen Bao says, well, it's been a little while and she's not back yet. And he turned to the two disciples of the priestess and said, why don't you go in there and uh, try, to, try and try and get her back? And Why? He, they chuck those two guys in. Oh, Jesus. Then he turned to the three village elders and he said, I hope those elders, I hope those disciples don't get distracted down there. You know, the river god, he can talk a long time and uh, we've got places to be. So Is he just bullshitting? Yeah. Okay. So why don't you go check on them? And then the three elders were thrown into the river. Uh, and he turned to the corrupt officials a few minutes later and said, those elders have been a little while. And the corrupt officials finally said, oh, look, we'll, we'll, we'll stop the sacrifices. We get it. Enough. And, that, <laughs> and, and thus the practice ended in China forever. Well, he blank slated the area, except for the corrupt officials. You might as well have just thrown them into. Yeah, well, once they, once they say they're not going to do the thing anymore, you, you don't want to hire all those people. Yeah, it's true. They didn't have zip recruiters back then. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't so easy to, to just pull people in for these kinds of posts. Certainly not a sacrifice recruiter. <laughs> Um, now, in Eastern Europe slash the Near East, as I mentioned, the Greeks, the like Athenian Greeks, didn't really go in for this kind of thing. Uh, and by the antiquity period, by like a couple hundred years before zero, 
Uh, both the ancient Greeks and the ancient Hebrews were writing about their ancestors and occasionally about people in neighboring lands who were practicing human sacrifice. Uh, but they would write about it kind of as something that was passe in civilized societies. The earliest texts we have from in the earliest written texts we have from India um, also reference human sacrifice in kind of the same way. Like, ah, people used to do this. Wasn't that rough? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Bible, we have the story of the binding of Isaac from the book of Genesis. I mean, there are a couple of sacrifice-y kind of things in the Bible. More than a couple, probably. Uh, yes, in the binding of Isaac story, Abraham is told by God as a test to sacrifice his son, and Abraham just doesn't miss a beat. He goes, okay, brings the kid to the top of the mountain, ties him to an altar. He's got his hands raised with the knife when an angel comes and brings... <laughs> Abraham a ram to sacrifice instead. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We were just... Uh, just you've, you've been punked. Um. <laughs> Ashton Kutcher came and gave <laughs> gave Abraham a ram instead to sacrifice. Um, scholar, Biblical scholars often see that story as like a cultural memory of, of the Israelites turning away from human sacrifice and toward animal sacrifice instead. Yeah, it makes sense. And there's other references in the Bible. Uh, Leviticus repeatedly forbids you from offering your children as sacrifices to Moloch. It's like eight times. Like, no, and seriously, don't give your sons and daughters to Moloch. Don't give your seed to Moloch. Don't give your children to Moloch. Uh, later in the book Kings, Josiah fucks up some infidels in the Valley of Gehenna, and then he destroys their altar, quote, that no man may make his son or daughter pass through the fire to Molech. All right, we got Moloch, we got Molech. Yeah, it's a lot of Moloch talk. So what's up with Moloch? What's up with Moloch? What is the deal with Moloch? <laughs> He's not referenced anywhere. He's not referenced anywhere except the Bible. Mm-hmm. Or all references trace back to the Bible. So it might be like a Hebrew name for a Canaanite or a Phoenician god. They had gods like Baal, you know, um, who maybe they sacrificed people to. But it might also just be a word for a particular method of sacrificing your children with fire. Mm-hmm. Um, Carthaginian inscriptions use the M, L, and K sounds, like Moloch. And that word always appears next to the words for either lamb or the word for human. <laughs> so Moloch might just mean burnt offering. Great. Um, yeah, so the Carthaginians probably did do some of this. Uh, many Greek and Roman sources also depict the Carthaginians as practicing the burnt sacrifice of infants. Mm. Um, but you should keep in mind the Roman Republic fought three wars over 120 years, uh, during which Carthage was like the ultimate boogeyman. Right. You know, like Cato the Elder would end every um, speech he made in the Senate with going, and furthermore, I believe Carthage should be destroyed. So do you think it might be a situation where they're, I mean, calling someone or a group of people baby eaters or baby killers, that's a classic still do it today. bad guy thing. I mean, you know, that's what happened with witches. That's what happened with all different kinds of people from different ethnicities and religions. Do you think that they're just kind of doing this as like, they're the bad guys. They, they kill babies. You well, know? I, I might think that if it weren't for the Tofets. The who? The Tofets are fields of uh, buried urns that are found throughout Phoenician, like the the civilizational footprint of where the Phoenicians got to, including Carthage. And where where vaguely is that in Europe? The Near East, like the Levant, out to northern, down to northern Africa and into Spain. Okay. 
they basically controlled the whole lower Mediterranean before the Romans uh, killed them. Mm-hmm. And they would have fields of buried urns, and inside each urn, the burnt remains of either a human infant or a lamb. Oh, God. At the Tophets in Carthage, 31% of the urns contain lambs. The other 69% contain humans. These urns would be pushed into holes, cut into the bedrock, with little stone monuments on top, like a gravestone. It's like a cemetery of sacrificed babies. Yeah, but the babies aren't mentioned or named on the stones. Instead, the stones say things like, To Lady Tanit, face of Baal, and to Lord Baal, Haman. Which Asheram, son of Bloodashart, son of Bodishu, Bloodshart? Because he heard his voice. He blessed him. Well, we're just going to skip right over Bloodshart. Um... I'm sure that's done because it's, prob- <laughs> it's probably harder to reckon with what you're doing if you're giving a name to the victims. But if you're kind of twisting it to be more all about who you're giving it to, then it's a little easier to stomach, I'd assume. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Now, the Greeks were pretty unimpressed with all this. Yeah. Um, the first reference to Carthaginian human sacrifice we have is from Cletarchus, who is a historian who worked for Alexander, I believe. He mm. wrote about Alexander the Great, and I think most of these guys writing about Alexander in the 3rd century BC were guys who were paid by Alexander to follow him around in the 3rd century and write nice things. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, Cletarchus says this, Phoenicians, and above all Carthaginians, worship Kronos. If they wish to achieve something big, they devote a child of theirs, and in the case of success, sacrifice it to the god. There is a bronze statue of Kronos among them, which stands upright with open arms and palms of its hands facing upwards, above a bronze brazier on which the child is burnt. When the flames reach the body, the victim's limbs stiffen, and the tense mouth almost seems like it is laughing, until, with a final spasm, the child falls in the brazier. It's not laughing, it's screaming. Kronos is, um... Is a titan in Greek mythology, right? He is, yeah. And so they probably, I'm sure the Carthaginians didn't worship anyone they called Kronos. Specifically, yeah. But like the idea of this. It's the closest the Greeks can get to. And they worship Satan. Yeah. Uh, First century historian Diodorus Siculus says, when Carthage was besieged by Syracuse in 310 BC, the Carthaginian city elders blamed a recent shift they'd made away from their sacrificial traditions. And by the way, they hadn't stopped sacrificing children. They had just started buying slave children instead of sacrificing their own. Oh, God. All right. Diodorus says, In their zeal to make amends for this omission, they selected 200 of the noblest children and sacrificed them publicly. And others who were under suspicion sacrificed themselves voluntarily, in number not less than 300. Kill me, please. There was in the city a bronze image of Kronos, extending its hands, palms up and sloping toward the ground. So each of the children, when placed thereon, rolled down and fell into a sort of gaping pit filled with fire. Jesus Christ. The the idea of the sloping hands so the children just roll off the hands into the fire pit is cartoonish. It's horrific. It is horrific. But it's it's also cartoonish. Now the Greeks, as much as they talked about human sacrifice and how bad it was... Um, They weren't strangers to it, um, certainly not in their own past. And in Athenian Greece, there was a ritual called the pharmakos. This would actually be, it would take place every year, even when you didn't need a 
a scapegoat, but it also would happen anytime something really bad happened to the city. Okay. But our earliest uh, reference to the pharmacos comes from the, get this, 6th century BC poet, Hipponax. I mean, a a 6th century satirist. He must be hilarious. Um, He described the Thargelia festival in honor of the twin gods Apollo and Artemis. Every year during this festival, two of the ugliest men who could be grabbed from the crowd were named the pharmacoi and sentenced to die. That's so sad. Uh, Just as scapegoats for the people. So one was dying for all the men of Athens' sins, and one was dying for all the women of Athens' sins. The victims would be led around with strings of figs around their necks, totally nude other than the strings of figs, and whipped around the ball sacks with rods of fig wood and pricker flowers. These poor men. And also, who's it up to to decide who are the ugliest ones? Like, unless it's very obvious to everyone. I mean, you you have your own preferences. It it seems like sometimes they would pre-select, like, murderers and stuff for this. I mean, if you're gonna do it, you might as well do that, but still. So they're getting beaten and whipped around the testicles the whole way to the place of sacrifice on the shore. Shame, shame. Where they would be stoned to death and then their bodies would be burned. Uh, Pharmacos, like I said, also sometimes you do this at times of disaster to appease the gods. But in later times, like by classical era Greece, by like the 300s BC, the murder was almost always symbolic, I think. So what do you mean? They would, beat, they, would, they would still whip the guys around the testicles and walk them to the shore, and then they would beat the crap out of them, and then symbolically kill them, and then just walk away. And then the guys would just... Rejoin society. Okay. Um, but if it, was, if it was like a murderer or a criminal they'd selected for this, they would, they would kill them. Um, the pharmacoi, sometimes you do this at a cliff instead of the beach, and the pharmacoi would be hurled from the cliff instead of being beaten to death, which sounds more fun. What, what would you prefer? I mean, are there like rocks beneath? Like, are you dying from the contact with the water? I think it's a really high cliff. I think you're probably passing out before you hit. I don't know about that. I think people overestimate that. Well, it's going to be rocks. God, I don't know. If I, if I'm dying either way, maybe the cliff. Mm-hmm. But if I have a chance of living, I'd rather be beaten. Well, yeah, sure. Obviously. Um, now, by the time of all of our written sources from Rome, human sacrifice was very passe. After all, that's... <laughs> Ugh, so last season. It was the kind of thing the Carthaginians do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pliny the Elder says human sacrifice was banned by law in Rome in 97 BC, but he says that was mostly a formality at that point. (laughs) Nobody was really doing it. Mm -hmm. But there were artifacts of those sacrificial rituals. The Argae Festival, celebrated yearly, uh, involved priests and vestal virgins doing this whole parade down a, a bridge in the middle of town and tossing straw effigies into the river. And that almost certainly was just old men in earlier years who would they, they would, you know, chuck into the river. Yeah, straw effigies is definitely a better option. Um, now, Livy does say that two Gauls and two Greeks in male-female couples were ritually murdered and buried in 216 BC beneath the Forum Borarium. But when he says that, he says it like it's the exception that proves the rule. Like he's like, and we never do stuff like this. But one time, mm-hmm. um, by the way, the forum and bor- people freaked out. The Forum Borarium uh, was the city's busiest cattle market, so that's a nice, it's a nice thing to 
happened there. <laughs> sure. Uh, but it was a desperate times, desperate measures kind of thing. This was right after the Roman defeat at Cannae. Uh, that's the battle that the Battle of the Bastards is based on, where all the Romans got crushed under each other's dead bodies by the uh, Carthaginian-like encirclement. And the people of the city were desperate for the gods to save them from Hannibal before he could come burn the city down, which he never did. So maybe it worked. The Battle of the Bastards was pretty pretty rough. Uh, there are references to this r- ritual then being repeated yearly after that, but it was almost certainly symbolic and not strangling four people under the cattle market every year because, again, the Romans talk all the time about how Carthaginians murder babies and it's terrible. So Right. You can't have the high ground if you're, uh, if you're murdering, toiling on the low ground. If you're doing it four times a year in the biggest, like, like... Yeah. Place of commerce in the city. That's a lot. It's a bit hypocritical. Now, all this doesn't mean Rome didn't love some ritual murder. I mean, technically the Colosseum is is very ritualistic. Uh, Very much so. And that's a little later because it doesn't really get going until the deep, like, imperial period. Mm -hmm. Um, But when gladiatorial games were growing in popularity, early Christians criticized them as being human sacrifice, which the Romans were supposed to be against. Right. Um, and there was a religious component. I mean, it's a sacrifice to, like, entertainment. Well, but there also was a religious component to the games. They were always thanking gods there and stuff. Yeah, but that's like us singing uh, the Star-Spangled Banner before the Super Bowl, you know? It's, Se- it's whatever. Seventh inning stretch, sacrifice a bull. Yeah. Um, over time, eventually, in the later imperial period, the games really did come to be seen as a sacrificial offering for the safety of Rome's armies and for the safe passage of the dead. Um especially once the participants were primarily criminals and slaves who are usually the people that get sacrificed. So it kind of swung back around in popularity. Well, their games were always popular. Right. But I mean, the idea of using them as a ritual sacrifice. Well, I think it was more like, well, we're killing these guys anyway. We have to <laughs> Two make birds, our- one stone. We have to make ourselves feel a little okay with it so their deaths are serving a purpose. And we're not going to use the word sacrifice at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but also Vestal Virgins, who were found to be less than virginal, were buried alive. God. Uh, babies born with both sets of sex organs were ritually drowned. That was a law on the books in ancient Rome. A law? Jesus. They were seen as abominations. Um, yeah, it's it's horrible. Yes, of course. But they didn't know anything back then. But you don't have to kill the child of course all of this just because you're stupid everything we're talking about is crazy in this episode um if you were a roman general the greatest honor you could have bestowed on you would be a triumph yes they were not they were pretty rare i think caesar got one i think pompey magnus got three and it was considered like oh my god pompey got three triumphs and a triumph is like a giant parade kind of thing just a parade basically uh but they would parade all the stuff you won in this war they would parade the leaders that's the big thing the captured leaders of the enemy army that you fought or the tribes you conquered or whatever would be paraded through the city at the head of this kind of column in chains and sometimes but not always they would be ritually strangled at the end of the party Mm. that is what happened to vercingetorix uh the leader of the gauls and caesar's famous like gaul campaign Well, I mean, they were very famously rivals, so I guess that makes sense. Yeah, at the end of Caesar's big parade and party, they uh, ritually strangled Vercingetorix after bringing him to the Temple of Jupiter. Mm -hmm. But not a sacrifice. Well, you know, two birds, one stone. Sure. 
um, Celtic peoples were also noted by the Romans for their sacrificial practices. Although, as noted, yes, Carrie's looking at me because of my Irish roots. Um, As noted, this was standard Roman practice, though, for differentiating themselves from barbarians. Yes. But the aforementioned Julius Caesar, talking about the aforementioned Gauls, says, All the Gauls are extremely devoted to superstitious rituals. And on that account, they who are troubled with unusually severe diseases, and they who are engaged in battles and dangers, either sacrifice men as victims, or vow that they will sacrifice them, and employ the druids as the performers of those sacrifices. Because they think that unless the life of a man be offered for the life of a man, the mind of the immortal gods cannot be rendered propitious. And they have sacrifices of that kind ordained for national purposes. Others have figures of vast size, the limbs of which, formed of wicker, they fill with living men, which being set on wicker fire, man. which being set on fire, the men perish, enveloped in the flames. They consider that the sacrifice of peoples guilty of theft or in robbery or any other offense is more acceptable to the immortal gods. But when a supply of such people is wanting, they have the right to even sacrifice the innocent. And Roman sources say Gallic sacrificial victims could be burned or hanged or drowned depending on which god they were being sacrificed to. Mm. But yes, uh, we have the Wicker Man. I think that's the first attestation of it. Or maybe there's one other Roman historian who, who said it before that, but Caesar's one of the guys who gives us the idea of the Wicker Man. Crazy. Not the bees. And in the first century BC, so a little while before Caesar, Posidonius wrote that dru- the Druids... We don't know anything about the Druids except that the Romans said that they were the Celts' priests, basically. Posidonius wrote that the Druids would stab a man, like in the guts, and then watch him die and divine the future from his death throes. So like reading tea leaves, except it's a murder. I mean, I've, I've heard reading entrails to predict the future before it uh, seems like a bit of a grim thing. I think I'll stick to the tea. And the cards. Yeah. The cards don't even scream. That's much easier. The cards always scream. Uh, Carrie, what do you know about bog bodies? <laughs> um, a weird amount, I would say. <laughs> I was uh, telling you recently, they had those, what were those um, magazines for kids? They were not National Geographic. Highlights for children? They were like a highlights, but they would concentrate on like one topic. You know, there would be one on whales, there would be one on earthquakes, um, and there was one on mummies, I believe. And they had a bunch of these in the doctor's office, and I would always pick up the mummy one because I was a little freak as a kid, and uh, they had a whole section on bog bodies. And I remember seeing them and being so freaked out by them because they looked just like people look in real life, just so preserved i mean mummies you know they either have the wrappings or they're all shriveled up but these just looked like statues of people so detailed and and it it was very trippy to realize those were bodies um so that was my situation as a child some of the mummies we'll mention in this episode are startlingly well preserved and and if you've got the stomach for it i definitely recommend googling some of the names i'm about to go through um Bog bodies can be found throughout Northwestern Europe, but we're going to focus specifically on England and Ireland here um, because some English and Irish bog bodies are believed to be Celtic kings sacrificed after a poor harvest or similar disaster. So what's a bog? A bog is like a swamp. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, peat bogs specifically have stuff in them that helps uh, preserve. Yeah, although this you'll find these in Denmark and stuff, and there's no peat there. So uh, I hear about cranberry bogs. I wonder if there are any cranberry bog bodies. I don't get it. The British also call... Uh, no, it's it's not a joke. It's just... Oh, well, that sounds delicious. The British, the British also call uh, the bathroom the bog, so... And take that as you will. Take that I'm as you will. I'm about to mummify some turds. Stop it. <laughs> Sorry. These bog bodies that we're talking about here are all young, otherwise healthy men who appear to have died violently. They all have manicured nails and expensive hair products and jewelry and meat-rich diets in their stomachs in their stomachs that suggest they were of a high status. Mm-hmm. The Cashel man was accidentally uncovered by a milling machine in, two th- in 2011. And he's one of the oldest bog bodies in the world. He's believed to date from 2000 BC. Is that Cashel, Ireland? Yes. Oh, I've been there. Uh, the Cashel man's arm was broken, likely with an axe. And his back has been broken in two places. Ugh. And the body also accompanied by wooden stakes, which is what make, pe- makes people think this was a ritual sacrifice of some kind. Because, come on, you're like, it's, if you're in a bar fight with somebody, you don't typically drive a wooden stake through his heart or whatever. Speak for yourself. Um, the Galach man lived sometime between 470 and 120 BC, and he was strangled with a woven willow hoop called a withy hoop that um, is important in some Irish myths. Mm-hmm. And the hoop was buried with him, so that was believed to be some kind of a ritual as well. There was a, f- a just a f- really famous one that's like an older guy, right? Um, could be. I don't know. You might be thinking of the old Krogan man, but Maybe. I don't know that he's an old man. He's just in old Krogan. <laughs> okay. Um, the Lindo man dates to around zero BC, and he looks like a man. <laughs> Flattened by a steamroller in a cartoon. When you look at the mummy, um, he's just like a the flat. guy from Beetlejuice that's uh, hanging in the air and he's going through the slots in the walls. Oh God! He looks like Where, a, where's the rest of them? He looks like he fell out of his skin. Um, yeah, I've been there. The Lindo man had cuts and lacerations to the head and a blunt object blow that had driven chunks of his skull into his brain. Ugh. He also had a possible neck wound along with ligature marks from a sinew cord that had been buried with the body. And scholars point to the overkill of this murder as evidence of ritual. Mm -hmm. There's uh, this very popular concept in uh, Celtic and Germanic myths called the threefold death, where lots of heroes or gods or whatever will die three times. They'll be um, disemboweled, strangled, and stabbed or cut. Hmm. it reminds you of Rasputin, actually, but uh, <laughs> well, like that's how Odin died all three of those ways. Interesting. So the uh, it's possible this represents his throat being slit, his head being bashed in, and also his being strangled is a threefold death uh, fitting for a king. I want to show you this one, Carrie, because of his fashionable blonde pompadour. <sighs> well, that's just a torso. Uh, well, head. he has a head. He has a head. We'll get to the torso in a second. Oh, great. Um, This guy with the fashionable hair has a deep wound on top of his head and large laceration across the bridge of his nose. That's believed to be the blow that killed him. He's also been disemboweled. So again, the overkill is like, this this isn't just a normal murder. Well, you know, a lot of magical tradition is all about threefold everything. Karma, 
you know, everything comes back to you three times. Three is a really big number um, in paganism and even in the church because of the Trinity. So it doesn't surprise me that their deaths would involve some sort of variation on that. Yeah. And the old Krogan man, finally, um, somewhere between 362 and 175 BC, and more accurately called maybe the old Krogan torso, uh, (laughs) is a legless, headless man found nude but for a braided, beaded leather band found around his left arm. Well, I mean, maybe he had pants. He well, he probably did at some point. Um, <laughs> he probably died from a stab wound that is in his chest, but then he was also decapitated and cut in half. So threefold again. Mm-hmm. All all of these bodies I just mentioned were mostly found were found near medieval territorial borders, which were seen as kind of liminal spaces. I mean, if if God set the boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. Then these maybe also represented boundaries between other things, between the worlds or whatever. Well, like when people thought you could just sail off the edge of the ocean, you right. know, and off of the world. You couldn't really imagine anything past that. Well, you knew what was past that. It was the, the guys you were always fighting with. But yeah. um, some of these bodies were also found near hills where kings were typically crowned. Mm-hmm. So it's believed the community, religious leaders, the druids, whatever, uh, would have blamed the local king for crop failures and similar and sacrificed him to placate the gods. So was it part of the ritual to throw him in a bog, or is it just that the ones that were disposed of in bogs survived? It seems that... And and they maybe had a bunch of more sacrifice sacrifice victims, but they weren't thrown into bogs or something like that. We don't have a good answer on that, but we do know some of these bodies were buried in a bog and then dug up a few days, weeks, or years later and buried again. So mm. I, th- I think people did know about the ability of the bog to preserve a body. Pretty much like the Egyptians knew that the desert could do the same sort of thing. Ex- well, salt, tons of salt. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Egyptians really really got their method down. Mm-hmm. Now, as you saw, Carrie, a lot, most of these uh, human sacrifice rites kind of died out before the common era, right? They're all these are mm-hmm. all BC dates for the most part. Uh, some of those Celtic kings were in were in the early times, but um, Vikings kept the human sacrifice train rolling a lot longer than almost anybody else in the old world. Mm-hmm. In 1072, Adam of Bremen, a German monk, wrote of a yearly tradition that he'd seen at Gamal Uppsala in Sweden, where nine men and nine of quote every kind of creature would be sacrificed to Odin, Thor, and Freya. So it was a Noah's Ark of murder. Yes. Uh, these would be all killed in a sacred grove, and then their bodies hung from the trees. Mm. Um, he said nine of every type of creature, but he, he, then he says men and horses and dogs hung there. So maybe it was just those three types of creature. I mean, maybe you couldn't think of any others. <laughs> um, I don't know how reliable that account is. And Christians of the time had an interest, like the Romans did all those hundreds of years before, in painting the Vikings as, painting any pagans as um, monstrous heathens. But couldn't you also think of the the Christians killing all these people that they thought were witches and, and all that stuff? Isn't that a kind of sacrifice to God? I, do, I definitely don't think they thought of it this way, that way. And all of the sacrifices we're talking about today are gifts 
made to either appease or placate or bribe uh, the gods to either get what you want from them or not have something bad happen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, I did a bunch of research on what are called retainer sacrifices where people would be murdered so they could go with their boss or their husband or their king into the afterlife. Yeah. Um, which I think you and our listeners will have heard of that, but I found some really interesting stuff. I just don't have time to get to it today. Like uh, a Viking funeral where the wife would be thrown on top of the pyre too, even if she was alive? I have a truly harrowing story of that, yes. And I'm going to tease that for a Patreon mini-sode that'll be coming soon. Sean, I love you very much, but if you, God forbid, go before me, I am not burning alive on a pyre with you. I'm sorry. No, it was usually a slave girl, not his actual wife. Okay. Still. In terms of sacrificing as gifts to the gods, uh, the Vikings definitely did partake in some of this, and they partook in it uh, as late as when Adam of Bremen was writing, uh, I I would certainly think. Underneath the Viking fort at Trelleborg, so built before the fort was, is a deep well containing five human skeletons, along with animal skeletons, tools, jewelry, basically like a wishing well. Okay. Uh, Four of the skeletons are young children aged four to seven. Uh, Wells were very, very important in Norse myth. Odin got all of the wisdom in the world by sacrificing one of his eyes to the well of Mimir. So they're throwing dead bodies in this well that they're maybe drinking from? Probably. We know from Walking Dead that's a bad idea. Uh, Yeah, but they might not have. The point is, it's clear that at least some of the Norse were practicing at least some human sacrifice after basically all of the rest of Europe had left it far behind. Mm-hmm. Um, Rollo, the Viking leader who founded the Duchy of Normandy, was still allegedly making human sacrifices to the Aesir gods in the 900s while he was nominally converting to Christianity to get his uh, duchy set up. <laughs> well, and- yeah, I don't think that really tracks with... Uh- Christianity. And a hundred years later, his like grandson, William the Conqueror, would become the king of England. That's crazy. That's where I'm going to leave it for old world human sacrifice. But uh, I think some of the best known, some of the biggest scale, and some of the most fascinating sacrificial rituals, as well as some of the latest, took place here in the Americas. And that's what we're going to get to after the break. Oh boy. Support for Ain't It Scary is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Their products are precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. And the Performance Package 4.0 has arrived. We got one of these in the mail uh, just the other day, Caroline. And, oh man, is it a game-changer. Inside this package, you will find, first of all, inside the lid, it says, Your balls will thank you, which I appreciate. Uh, And then you'll find the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, weed whacker, ear and nose hair trimmer, crop preserver ball deodorant, crop reviver ball toner, performance boxer briefs, and a travel bag to hold your goodies. And I mean all that stuff I just said, not your testicles, which are (laughs) also referred to as goodies a lot in the Manscaped uh, literature. Mm -hmm. First off, the Lawnmower 4.0. This trimmer is the future of grooming and, dare I say, the greatest ball trimmer ever. Their fourth-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 is waterproof and also has a 4000K LED spotlight for when you need a more precise shave. It really is just a, um, 
you know, they're re- they're ready to go on stage. They're ready for Hollywood, these guys. They got a spotlight right on them. Hey, boys. Like they have their own vaudeville act. Absolutely. I'm the left. He's the right. Nice. It's time to take care of yourself. So go to manscaped.com and get 20% off and free shipping with code SCARYSQUAD. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code SCARYSQUAD. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Welcome back. We are taking uh, nourishment in the blood of the innocent. Sorry. We are taking a... Sean, absolutely not. We are taking a fascinating tour through the barbaric practice of human sacrifice throughout um, human history. We sure are. Uh, From bogs to urn fields to rivers full of dead women. Mm -hmm. Now, we spent uh, the whole first half of this show in... Asia and Europe and... Um, ye oldie world. Ye oldie world. And now I think it's time to take uh, a trip to the new world for some of the most colorful and close to home human sacrifices in history. Now, just before that, I know we talked about China, but are there any other areas that maybe didn't have as much, but like Africa or Middle East, like did they do that there as well? Uh, yes, in the Middle East, I believe the practice had largely gone the way of the dinosaur. As as with, I could, mean, Islam started pretty early, right? No, no. Like, I want to say the, I mean, early medieval period, eight oh. or nine hundred, something like that. I thought it was earlier than that. Um, but nonetheless, I I don't th- I think in the whole kind of Near East, Middle East out to india region the practice of human sacrifice had seems to have mostly died out just like with the mediterranean uh before like 400 bc 300 bc and what about other like you know any african countries anything like that unfortunately uh certain pervasive uh folk beliefs in african countries like ghana um mean that ritual murders of children still happen I mean, so, I know, I know there are ritual procedures, um, and and certainly murder, but I didn't know that they were still doing it for a ritual reason. Yeah, but I'm sure that there are places that do that all over the world still. You know, small pockets. It's it's apparently a, a problem in Ghana. Oh, all right. Now in South America, the most famous sacrificers probably were the Inca. Yeah. Uh, The Inca, widely known to have practiced human sacrifice, and they did it most famously through their ritual called Kapak Hucha. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kapak Hucha was undertaken whenever the king was crowned, died, was sick, had a kid born, um, all the big Polaroid moments for the Inca king. Uh, You'd have to have a Kapak Hucha. I mean, and none of the kings were like, you know what, I'm good, thank you. Uh, no. Let's just have a party. How are you going to have a party? Well, but you need the gods to... <laughs> How are you going to have a party without a dead without, person? Without sacrificing a couple um, of children. Easily. We just had one for Halloween. No one died. Um, Kapakucha would also be undertaken as a big ceremony or procession. This is would be really... They would really parade it out and really bling it out uh, at times when they were doing the ritual to ward off impending or current disaster. So their own version of like a triumph almost, except it it was more about the sacrifice, less about the winning over someone else. Yes. 
And uh, yeah, not celebrating usually. Well, if you're celebrating the king's birthday or whatever, that's one thing. Um, All right, blow out the candles and now uh, throw this lady off a cliff. Nope, it's worse than that. Great. So all re- I love hearing that on this show. So all regions of the empire uh, owed a certain number of kids per year as tribute to the Kapakucha rituals. The children will be chosen at age 10, and they often came from rich or noble families, actually. It was like politically desirable to have your children selected, and it was kind of a, a political honor slash bargaining token for the future. The children chosen would only be the most physically perfect virgins they could find. So the opposite of the two old ugly men in the town. Yes, this is not the pharmacoy, uh, because this is not a scapegoating thing. This is about throwing something completely innocent, you know, to the god. The boys selected would go right to Cusco to get ready for sacrifice. Right to Cusco. Well, that was the capital city. Mm -hmm. Uh, While the girls were trained in weaving, brewing, and religion for four years. And then they'd be divided into three groups. Some of them would become priestesses who would teach the next batch of girls. So you definitely wanted to be there so you didn't get murdered, right? Uh, Yep. And sort of the least pretty, the least desirable girls would end up being the priestesses. Um, The prettier ones would become wives for the emperor and his buddies. Uh, and the very best, most skilled, and the best at the, re- the religious stuff, the best weavers, the top of the tops became the sacrifices. Though I'm sure some of the emperors were like, yeah, she's the hottest we'll one. set that one aside. We're just going to set that one aside. Keep in mind, these are 14-year-old girls we're speaking of. Oh, they always were, weren't they? The children would then travel with their families to Cusco to begin the ritual with a big meal. They'd all get dressed up and have a big, nice meal, big party. Uh, sometimes the sacrifices were too young. Like, they were still breastfeeding, so their mothers would be brought in to, to make sure they had God. a big meal. Uh, and they'd get in their special ceremonial costumes. They'd pair the sacrifices into boy-girl couples and parade them around statues of the creator, the sun god, the moon god, and the thunder god. And then they went to the ritual site, which was a mountain. But they weren't allowed to use the road. They had to just go in a straight line directly from Cusco to the mountain. So this big entourage of weeping loved ones... And priests who just kind of want to get this over with. I've got, an, I've got five more cup of kutches today. Um, they're hoofing it for days over mountains and through rivers and stuff, just in a straight line until they get to this mountaintop shrine. Mm-hmm. Then the children would be drugged um, with heavy doses of either coca leaves, nicotine, uh, alcohol, or some combination. Mm-hmm. And in particularly cold places, now the Inca... Uh, controlled most of Peru at this time. So if you were on a very high mountain where it was cold, uh, the children would just be left to die of exposure. But honestly, drugging them first is the, the kindest thing I've heard for any of these people doing sacrifices so far. Uh, the mummies left behind by these rituals often have like vomit on their clothes oh. and stuff because I, I just don't know if it's merciful to force a child to drink a bunch of wine. Of course not, but... You know, I'd rather be drugged than just be thrown in a river alive and sober and, you know, fine. Well, nobody's getting thrown in a river. You know, okay, burned, left for exposure, whatever. I'd rather be drunk or whatever. I mean, you'd think more of these other um, sacrificers would have thought of something like that, especially for the children. 
in warmer places where the children couldn't be counted on to die of cold, uh, to freeze to death quickly. They would usually die from a blow to the back of the head uh, or being stabbed from behind. Then a small collection of tools and artifacts, uh, specially chosen according to kind of ritual prescriptions, uh, would be tied up in a small bundle. They would dig a hole. They weren't allowed to use shovels or any metal implements. They had to dig the hole with sharpened sticks. The child would be wrapped up in the fetal position and buried there on the mountain. I mean, this is the basis for the classic Buffy season two episode, Inca Mummy Girl. She was a a human sacrifice. She was like a a beautiful princess that was killed. Yeah. And those Inca mummies, uh, once again, as with the bog bodies, and these are really sad because they're children. Yeah. And I've seen these too. They're they're like all, they're they're like sitting there. And they're much later. Um, I mean, they died. Those bog bodies are from, again, 1,000, 2,000 years ago, some of them. Uh, these children died in like the 14, 1500s. Oh, God. And they look like fresh corpses. I mean, they. You, yeah. I, I was, you, much to your chagrin, showing you some of these pictures. Uh, well, I'd seen some of them before. The, it's so striking how they're still sitting. Because you just imagine bodies laying down. That's how we present bodies. Um, and so they're just sitting there and it seems like, and, and they're so preserved, I guess, from the cold or wherever they were that... Um, they seem like they're just sleeping. Yeah. If you Google children of Luyayako, that's a guess at the pronunciation. It's got a lot of L's in it. How are, I mean, I think you're going to have to spell that. L-L-U-L-L-A-I-L-L-A-C-O. A lot of L's. Or the boy of El Plomo. Those mummies really bring the horror of these, again, murders, much closer to the present. These poor children. Now, long before the Inca moved into that valley... The Moche culture lived in northern Peru from 100 to 700 AD. And we know not a lot about their culture, but we know from their art and sculpture, kind of like with the Minoans, Mm -hmm. that these guys were very into human sacrifice. Mm. Uh, It featured heavily in their religion and in other aspects of their culture. Uh, Their chief deity, Ayepeque, is known to archaeologists as the decapitator. Oh, God. Because he's depicted as a spider with a jaguar head. And when his body is shown, his body is sometimes just the jaguar head, right? But when his body is shown, he always has an axe in one hand, and he's holding a human head by the hair in the other hand. Lovely. Um, the sacrificial victims would be usually the young members of noble families, young men. And uh, they'd be chosen by ritual combats, mm-hmm. where they would dress in really nice clothes, or really ceremonial you know, garments, with big feathery headdresses, and they would fight to tear off each other's headdresses. It's so fascinating in all of these different cultures how they choose the sacrifice. Because, you know, a lot of them are, are the same, right? But there are so many different versions. It's, oh, the youngest and most beautiful children, or, you know, babies, or noble men, or the ugliest men and criminals. It really wildly varies. Well, I think this, the purposes of these different sacrifices are also distinct. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're trying to tear the headdresses off. It's like a WWE gimmick match of some <laughs> kind. It's money in the bank, except the, the guy who doesn't get the briefcase is bled to death. Well, I mean, we've seen Lucha Underground. So they'd be punctured a bunch of places, and then let uh, they would let them bleed to death on the temple floor. Uh, and then you'd have your guts displayed literally all over the temple walls. I mean, at least that was post-death. Yeah. They were uh, taking out the guts. And Aya Pajic is also a recent Spider-Man villain, so that's kind of fun. 
Sure. Norman Osborn like conjured this. <laughs> I don't know if it's supposed to be the ancient Moche god or if it's just someone named this, but he is a jaguar spider. Uh, yeah, it's supposed to be him. So Norman conjures this ancient god then, and then I guess he gets him to work with him by giving him some of Spider-Man's blood so he can turn into just a six-armed Spider-Man. Wouldn't you rather be the Spider-Jaguar? Absolutely. Anyway, uh, that's I haven't read the story, so I, I'm speaking out of school a little <laughs> bit here. It's okay. I think we can assume. Central America had some of the most fascinating rituals that we're going to talk about today, and that's why we're going to end it here. Now, just before we do, Egypt didn't really do human sacrifice? Uh, Egypt, in the very early days, had retainer sacrifices mm-hmm. um, with some of their uh, with some of the pharaohs, but I'm going to save that for our uh, upcoming Patreon minisode. Yeah, but they weren't really, you know killing people for isis or osiris or whatever isis and osiris were not asking for people's blood you, you wonder if there were like cults to set who would kill people yeah. or, but we don't have any evidence of that mm-hmm. the maya viewed blood sacrifice as a nourishing meal for their deities um such that blood would both keep the gods alive but also make them happier and more pleasantly disposed toward humanity mm-hmm and so self-bloodletting was a popular form of prayer and sacrifice for the Maya and for the societies that kind of uh, lived around after and before them. And would this just be blood or would you be committing suicide? No, no, no. Just bleeding yourself. Um, okay. I mean, they were doing that anyway in medical terms in a lot of places in the world. Sure. Yeah. They had uh, stingray spines that they would fashion into these sharp little tools uh, for the specific purpose of poking yourself in the uh, around the eyes and in the ears and in the tongue and in the nose and in the penis, mm. the foreskin was 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 a nice Ugh. place to get the blood from. So they would okay. stab themselves up, and um, yeah, great. But if offering blood is good, sacrificing a living creature was considered a more potent offering, mm-hmm. and by extension, sacrificing a living human was the tastiest god food there could be. Mm-hmm. The sacrifices in Maya culture were usually high-status prisoners of war. Uh, so again, it's a it's a different it's a different thing that they're doing here. Yeah, here it's high-ranking enemies. Uh, yeah. The lower-ranking enemies, the kind of grunts, were just used as slave labor. That's you, we've got a lot, a lot of pyramids to build, you know. Sure. Um, and those major building building projects also required human sacrifice for consecration. Um, so in some cases, you've got mass graves of infants that are found near large temples, kind of similar to that uh, Chinese uh, city we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. But more often, uh, because it was a more potent sacrifice, actually, an enemy king would be beheaded as you consecrated a new temple. Uh, ritually, the victim would represent the Maya maze god, and the executioners would be dressed up as the Maya death gods in a recreation of one of their important kind of creation myths. The maze god being for corn and crops and all that. Yep, and he's killed by the death gods, and then he's reborn every year. So yeah, it's a similar similar vibe to how they explained um, the seasons changing anywhere around the world before they figured it out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you've usually you've got a figure who causes the crops to grow, who's either leaving or dying when the winter comes. Or right? sad. Or sad. Uh, the victim would often be tortured before the beheading, um, either beaten, scalped, burned, disemboweled, or some combination of the four. Decapitation was also often the method of choice for executing defeated Mesoamerican ball game players. 
the Mesoamerican ball game is the only name we have for this sport that the Maya and the Aztecs and the um, Toltecs and the Olmecs all played, where they'd have these solid rubber balls somewhere between the size of like a lacrosse ball and a volleyball. Mm-hmm. Uh, but hard rubber, like so a medicine ball, basically, that you were only allowed to hit with your hip. Okay. And you had to knock it through this stone hoop on the wall to get points. Okay. And the losing team was usually sacrificed. So ba- so this is like if in the World Series, the losing team was just all murdered afterward. Yeah. That's crazy. There were, oh, I forget, was it the Maya... Yeah, the, uh, the, the around this time in Central America, sometimes cities would fight wars. It was all city-states kind of fighting for control. And you would take over another city-state and another city-state and another city-state, and that's how you built an empire. Um, sometimes in place of a war, two city-states would just go like, you want to just have a ball game? And they would play ball, and then whichever city lost, their king was killed. Because the kings were also the captains of the ball teams. And and the the rest of the team would just be made slaves they'd probably be killed too i guess usually Mm. the whole losing team is killed but honestly i think i'd rather do that than just war i mean if if it's ball game or war and you're gonna die either way if you lose eh, might as well play play ball yeah so obviously for some important events the uh beheadings were the way to go but they weren't the only way that maya sacrificed people um at Chichen Itza, the biggest city of the post-classical Mayan period, so around the time the Spanish are um, attacking, mm-hmm. Chichen Itza, I think, is their biggest city. It's built around what's called the Sacred C-Note. Uh, I, I never know if this word is C-Note or C-Note, but it, it's a chasm. Okay. They, it, it's a 130-foot deep natural sinkhole, half full of water. So you got about a 65-foot drop and then a 65-foot deep lake. Mm-hmm. And sacrifices would be hurled into this sinkhole during times of drought. This is Sparta style. Famine or disease uh, right up until the Spanish conquest. So into the 1500s. Wow. If bad stuff's going down, you're just going to take somebody and uh, I picture kind of arm and a leg to people <laughs> just swinging and hurling them in. That happened to me once on vacation at, uh, at an upstate New York lake when I won bingo. So Pro- I can relate. Probably a little less of a drop. Oh, yeah. Just off the dock. <laughs> um, the, Mayan, the Mayans would also practice arrow sacrifice, in which the victim would be stripped and painted blue and made to wear a funny little pointy hat. And then they'd be bound to a stake, have blood drawn from their penis with a, a stingray spine, while everybody danced around them. And the, they had their genital blood smeared on a statue of whatever god was being sacrificed to today. So these were mostly men. Yes, because you need well, it, well you, you need that penis blood. Remember, you could also get blood out of the area around the eyes, uh, the right. ears, and the nose. So you could sacrifice women this way. Okay, but uh, men are more often because remember they're captured combatants most of the time. Mm-hmm. A white symbol would be painted on the victim's chest as a target, and then the dancers, continuing to dance around, would shoot him until he died. Uh, each dancer, there's a lot of ritual importance here. Each dancer would have to do three circuits, dancing the whole time. And on the second r- run around, you would shoot the guy with one arrow. And on the third time around, you would shoot the guy with two arrows. But you weren't supposed to let him die too fast, because he was supposed to bleed a lot first. <laughs> and no one was allowed to stop dancing the whole time. Great. Sounds like a party. 
But for the Mayans, the best sacrifice, if you really wanted to please a god, the best thing you could do was the heart rip. Is this like Temple of Doom style? Like oh, Kalima, yeah. Kalima? Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. The human heart was considered the fanciest meal that could possibly be offered to the gods. Uh, once again, the victim would be stripped naked, painted blue, the color of sacrifice. He'd have to wear this stupid pointy cap. This is, by the way, you're in a temple courtyard or on top of a pyramid, big step pyramid. Uh, once again, they got to get some blood out of your genitals or your face. So they're, they're poking you with the, with the little sharp uh, spine again. And blood is spread around the area, sprinkled around the area sometimes. The victim would be laid out on a convex stone altar. So it's kind of uh, rounded on top. And that way, when the four priests hold their arms and legs and stretch them down across this altar, their chest is sort of forced up, which makes it easier for the head priest to come in with a flint knife and either make a cut straight down the sternum or under the left breast, after which the ribs were broken, pushed Ugh. aside, and the still beating heart was cut from the victim's chest. Oh, God. There was a special guy who did this, actually. That wasn't the priest. I'm sorry. There's a guy whose job was just to cut the heart out. He's like an executioner. Or a surgeon. He's a heart guy. And he would hand the, the, the heart. Every account I read of this says the still beating heart. So I don't know if it actually pumps a couple times after you pull it out of the body. It might. It probably still has blood in it. The heart would be handed to the officiating priest, who then smeared some of the heart's blood on the god's idol. Hmm. And the heart would then be burned as an offering. Great. Now, like I said, this might be in a temple courtyard. It might be on top of a pyramid temple. If you are on top of a pyramid, at this point, your body is hurled down the steps into the courtyard. <laughs> well, you're already dead. Into the courtyard where the minor priests immediately set about skinning you out there in the courtyard. Uh, the head priest will sometimes now strip down out of his ceremonial robes on his way down the pyramid and dress in the skin Ugh. for the performance of the final ritual dance. Ugh. So that's a very sticky display. Yeah. He's wearing fully like a Buffalo Bill human skin suit and then just. That's foul. You put your left foot in, <laughs> you put your left foot out. Oh, God. Uh, the priest would get the hands and the feet as kind of a door prize and he would wear them as a trophy. The bones, that is, for years afterward. And if the victim was especially admired or famous or if he was a very brave warrior. He'd be cut up and eaten by all the warriors in attendance and just other bystanders. Cooked first or just I, raw? It doesn't say cooked first, although I know there were fires on hand because they're burning the heart. So eh, take your pick. I'd probably pick cooked <laughs> <laughs> but, or, or none. But I don't know what they were doing. I don't know if yeah. they were uh, cooking it or not. Mm-hmm. Now the Aztecs, the Aztecs built their empire after the Maya, but they were kicking around in the same classical period the Maya were. And uh, basically, while the Maya were on their way down, the Aztecs were on their way up. They're probably the best known human sacrificers, probably because they're the best attested, best described pre-Columbian Mesoamerican civilization. They're just the ones we know the most about because the Spanish spent a lot of time dealing with them violently and non-violently. Mm -hmm. um, but also because the Aztecs seem to have done this more and with more gusto than basically anyone, as human sacrifice became totally embedded in the Aztec way of life. And I think that makes a little bit of sense if we look at the Aztecs' beliefs, their religious beliefs. 
Um, so the Aztecs believed that the sun in the sky right now was the fifth one that we'd had. The first sun was actually Tezcatlipoca, the night god. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had been knocked out of the sky by his jealous brother Quetzalcoatl, the, serp- the feathered serpent god of light and wind. But this left no sun in the sky. And while it was dark, Tezcatlipoca, who's kind of a scoundrel, uh, sent jaguars to the earth to eat every single giant. There were no people back then, only giants. The okay. giants were all eaten by jaguars. So then the other gods made a new, normal-sized race of people, and, <laughs> and Quetzalcoatl became the new sun. But after a while, the people stopped praying to the gods, and they got lazy and sinful because nobody was killing them. And uh, Tezcatlipoca, the god of night, darkness, and deceit, decided to teach them a lesson by turning them all into monkeys. Now, Quetzalcoatl didn't like this, so he blew all the monkeys away with a hurricane and then came down from the sky to start over again and make some new people. Okay, so it's not only multiple suns, there's also multiple races of humans or or people on Earth. Yes, we're on the third run of trying to populate the Earth. Right. Uh, So the new sun was Tlaloc, the god of rain, but while he was doing this new gig, (laughs) our old friend Tezcatlipoca who is the, really the Seth of these, you know, this mythology. He's kind of the, the Loki. Uh, Tezcatlipoca stole Tlaloc's wife, mm. Xochiquetzal, who is the goddess of sex and beauty. So she's the Aphrodite. Mm-hmm. Um, Tlaloc got super depressed that he was being cuckolded by um, the, the night god. And so drought swept the world as he stopped making it rain. And the people prayed and prayed, please make it rain. We're dying of thirst. And Tlaloc just got really annoyed and killed them all with a rain of fire that destroyed the entire earth. You want rain? Tlaloc got remarried, got his groove back, and his new wife, Chalchitlikyu, these names are really tough, but <laughs> she was the goddess of oceans, rivers, and storms. Uh, she was the new sun, and um, was the best sun yet. She loved the people very much. She was very kind to them. The people loved her in return. But Tezcatlipoca couldn't have this. That's too bad, because she seems like a groovy chick. He accused the ocean god son of being falsely kind in order to gain praise from the people. And that made her so sad oh. that she cried blood for 52 years and drowned everyone on earth with her bloody tears. Oh, well, I feel that, though. Uh, Quetzalcoatl couldn't have this. He was also a fan of all those people who had just died. And he's like, I already created humanity twice. Like, enough is enough. So Quetzalcoatl went to the underworld, got everyone's bones, uh, spilled his own blood. That's why Quetzalcoatl's sacrifices are so blood-focused with all the, all the penis stabbing. Mm. Uh, spilled his own blood and dipped his, uh, the bones in. And that brought everybody back to life, just in time to welcome their new son, Huitzilopochtli. And that's the current son, is Huitzilopochtli. And what is this son god of? The sun. So, okay, we, we had rain, we had night, now we have sun god is, is the sun. sun. Okay. Yeah, but all of these were, they, I guess they were all functional suns when they were the sun. Yeah. Just this guy's only function is he's currently the sun. Oh. Um, but he's like... It's better to full-ass one thing than half-ass a bunch. But he's like the... He's there... He's... As Athena is to Athens, Huitzilopochtli is to... The Aztecs. Mm-hmm. He's their chief deity. He's he's the guy. He's their Horus. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And he's fighting an all-important war against the moon and the stars. You see, the moon and the stars are jealous of the new sun, and so every night they chase him away, and every day he chases them back. And it's a battle going back and forth across the sky for all time. Well, as long as they're not murdering people. Well, here's the thing. You have to. Because you can see, given all that, Carrie, it's very important that the Aztecs offer human life as nourishment for Huitzilopochtli in his all-important war against the moon. Mm. It's also important that they offer human sacrifices to Tezcatlipoca to sate his bloodlust and spare humanity further judgment. Mm-hmm. They also offer their blood, not human lives. Quetzalcoatl frowned on human sacrifice, so they only offer their blood to him as thanks for the shedding of his blood to save humanity. Um, but I don't think any of the other gods seem to have problems with the human sacrifice. All the other gods seem to like blood and lives, too, and you need their help to not be killed by fires and earthquakes. So you got to sacrifice to them. And the Aztecs believed that should these sacrifices stop, the stars would eat the sun, and then every person on Earth... The stars were actually uh, female skeleton zombies, by the way. They're just real far away, so you can't see. Spooky. Uh, So they'll eat the sun, the world will be plunged into blackness, and a series of terrifying earthquakes will kill everyone who's left and destroy the world once again. My. Now, on a practical level, this was also an expanding empire. Um, eventually the Aztec Triple Alliance would cover 80,000 square miles and five to six million subjects. That territory was largely taken by violent conquest, which came with lots of war captives. So there's some element of military, sacrificial, industrial complex where favor from the gods gets you success in battle, which gets you captives. You got to do something with those captives, so you might as well kill them to get more favor from the gods for the next battle. And so on and so forth. And so on and so forth. Now, human sacrifice seems to have stepped up a lot with the advent of the Flower Wars. These were ritual mass combats fought between the Aztec Triple Alliance and their neighboring kind of enemy cities for the express purpose of gaining human prisoners to sacrifice. So the early 1450s saw a series of crop failures and droughts and just mass starvation across central Mexico, and a handful of city-states, I think five at first, agreed to have these regular, organized ritual wars, Hmm. where two armies would meet up at a pre-selected time in a sacred place, and they would mark the start, instead of shooting a starter pistol, you'd burn a big pyre of incense in the middle between the two armies, Mm -hmm. and then they would just run at each other and start fighting. And unlike typical Mesoamerican combat, there were no ranged weapons. You know, they had like atlatls, uh, spear throwers, and mm-hmm. and um, darts they would throw and things like that. None of that, none of that allowed. Just up close and personal melee combat and doing your best to injure and then capture your opponent, not kill them. Hmm. Um, now, fighting in and being killed in or sacrificed after the Flower Wars was considered a great honor, like the best way you could die as an Aztec, so... Or as an Aztec warrior. So everybody was kind of on board for all this. Yeah, I mean, because they were told that it was great. Right. Um, but that meant a nice, healthy flow of human sacrifices. And uh, cities would make multiple human sacrifices at monthly rituals, all major festivals, and of course, anytime. Monthly. monthly yeah, every month they would have uh, these. Not like they were killing thousands of people every month, but they would mm-hmm. kill some people every month. Wow. The 1487 reconsecration of the Great Pyramid at Tenochtitlan supposedly involved the sacrifice of 80,400 people. Wow. 
Now that's based on later Spanish sources. And, and that those are sacrifices in this ritual war sort of thing, or no? We'll get to their methods in a, in a second. Oh gosh, okay. uh, that's based on later Spanish sources, and some archaeologists say it was probably something like that. Eighty thousand is crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's probably something more like ten thousand. Oh yeah, much more reasonable. Absolutely, um, but literally for this event, four tables were arranged at the top of the pyramid on the four sides. So that four victims could be sacrificed at once and then just efficiently jettisoned down the side. Wow. But at those higher estimates, the 80,400 number, you would have to be killing 15 people a minute for the entire four days that this ceremony took place. Sounds like a slog. So it's probably one of the lower numbers, but still, you know, crazy. Yeah. Now as to method, the Aztecs liked the heart rip just as much as the Mayans did, if not more. Uh, it was certainly the most popular way of honoring and feeding Huitzilopochtli, mm-hmm. the sun god. Uh, and the Aztecs were really big on the whole throwing of the corpse down the pyramid steps. You know, that dramatic kicking of the... And then what would they do after? Would they bury or dispose of it? Or would, they, would the body just be there? Well, for the whole ritual, the gathered crowd below would dance around uh, nude, I think, because they'd be stabbing themselves the whole time in the face and penis with uh, stingray spines. <laughs> okay. And bleeding all over the place to make Quetzalcoatl happy. Um, afterward, the victim's viscera would sometimes be, be fed to zoo animals. They actually had zoo animals in the Aztec Empire. They weren't always cannibalized. Sometimes they were just disposed of. But if they were cannibalized, the warrior who made the capture of the sacrifice would get the arms, which were considered, you know, where the strength lay. Mm-hmm. And the chieftains uh, of the of the city would get all the like organ meat. Huh. <laughs> they have the tastes of like a like a 1500s French king. Yeah. Oh, well, it is 1500s. Yeah. The victim's head was always cut off and displayed in the skull rack which is a charming Mesoamerican tradition dating all the way back to the Toltecs. Hmm. Um, this was like, I mean, you, you're already picturing it. It's multiple rows of shelves with neat little head-sized spaces for the display of, it's called a skull rack, but they would put the heads in there while they still had meat on them, and they would just sort of become skulls over time. Nice. Like in young Frankenstein. Yes. <laughs> um, so that's how you honor the sun god. Um, sacrifices also had to be made to Big Bad Tezcatlipoca to keep him away. And Tezcatlipoca sacrifices were often made to fight mock gladiatorial combats. What do I mean by a mock combat? Well, it was mock combat for one side. The sacrifice would be tied to a heavy rock and given fake weapons. Mm-hmm. So the Aztecs would fight with these clubs, a wooden club with uh, shards of obsidian, sharpened obsidian embedded into it. So it cut you up when you hit people with it. Ugh. But the sacrifice would be given a club that just had feathers glued to the outside instead of oh, no. instead of that and a feather armor to wear. And he would be tied to a big heavy stone. And then he would be pitted against somewhere between one and four fully armed jaguar or eagle warriors who were the um, like elite special ops, basically, of the uh, Aztec armies. Wow. So, you know, not, not a long fight. You're not going past the first round, usually, in one of those. Mm-hmm. During the month of Tuxcatl, the most important Tezcatlipoca sacrifices were performed. A young war captive would be selected a year in advance, and they'd spend that year educating him in oratory, flute playing, and singing. 
He had to do parades throughout the streets all year. Pla- Why would they bother educating him? Because he has to appear to be a god by the end of the year. Okay. So he does parades through the streets, playing the flute and smoking tobacco, uh, while everybody bows down to him and worships him as a god, as the god Tezcatlipoca walking the earth. Mm-hmm. His skin would be painted black for these parades, uh, except for a an unpainted band across his eyes. He'd be dressed in embroidered cotton clothes and fine gold jewelry, wearing an eagle feather headdress, turquoise bracelets, and ankle bells, which is apparently what Tezcatlipoca looks like, the Babadook as a one-man band. Yeah. What if he was just real bad at the flute? Like, could he extend it a little bit? What if he couldn't <laughs> like, play I'm the still f- learning. Yeah, what if he couldn't play the flute by the end of the year? I think as if you can effectively smash it at your feet, you've got all the skills you need. Mm. 20 days out, the sacrifice would be wed to four maidens who were also chosen for the ceremony and also dressed like gods. Were they also sacrificed? I actually don't know that they are. They probably are, but it's not mentioned in the specific (laughs) source. Who cares? Uh, Well, because there were definitely a lot of sacrifices in addition to this. This guy wasn't the only guy killed in this festival. You know what I mean? They Mm -hmm. dress a bunch of people like Tezcatlipoca, but this is the guy who spent a year living it. Sure. 20 days out, he was wed to these four girls. Uh, Four days out, the five teenagers would begin a schedule of basically nonstop parading and tobacco smoking and flute playing. And finally, the sacrifice would go willingly up the steps of the Great Pyramid, breaking a flute on each step. So these clay flutes, I don't know how many steps, but you've got a big sack full of flutes, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. And he plays a little off-key note and then smashes a flute on each step. And you know the rest. Heart rip, head in the skull rack, body kicked down the pyramid to be flayed and eaten. Mm-hmm. At this point, the next year's sacrifice is already chosen, and he's given some of the best parts of the body to eat, and also <laughs> and also the victim's skin to wear. It's, it's like uh, the grandpa at the Thanksgiving. He gets the nice wing, and he gets the crispy skin. Exactly. So, And then you don't murder him a year later i would hope not um so what's going on here i mean they're killing tezcatlipoca is the bad god right he's the loki or the seth and they're killing him in effigy but then the tezcatlipoca for the next year is already there and he's eating the old tezcatlipoca so there's also like a rebirth element mm-hmm. which we talked about that there's rebirth kind of fertility elements in in all of these uh, sacrificial rituals because it's believed this is what you had to do to keep the food coming yeah. Now, Zhutehutli, there's no way I'm getting that name right. <laughs> uh is the god of light and fire. Look up Aztec god of light and fire. You'll see the word I'm trying to read. Uh-huh. Um, at the sacred center of every Aztec home, a small fire was kept burning all the time for Zhutehutli. Fire was obviously important for cooking and especially for roasting and drying maize, which was the all-important Aztec staple. But also, if you don't keep this god happy, he might burn us all to death. Mm-hmm. So it was important to keep him fed. Uh, ten days before his yearly festival would be spent capturing animals to be thrown into the hearth as sacrifices on the day. Um, and then on the day, all day would be spent singing and dancing. You have a big old dinner. And then, of course, the burning of captives dressed as the, as the fire god. Mm-hmm. But it won't surprise you to know, Carrie... They would be pulled out of the fire just before they died, so their still-beating hearts could be cut out. Man, insult to injury. They loved it. They had to get that heart in there. Mm. Now, every 52 years, the Aztecs had two calendars. 
a solar calendar, a 365-day solar calendar based on the movement of the sun like we have. But they also had a sacred calendar that was like 200-something. Every 52 years, the two calendars would align. And that's when you had to have the new fire ceremony, which first involved five days of silence, abstinence, and ritual bloodletting for everyone in the city. So we're all just, we're not going to work, we're not talking, we're just silently stabbing ourselves with the uh, stingray spines again. Mm -hmm. Then a sacrifice's heart would be cut out on top of a mountain as Orion's belt rose overhead. And this is an interesting wrinkle. The heart cut out, we expect at this point. But because it was a sacrifice to the fire god, they would start a little fire in the hole in the chest they had just made. And that would be used as the spark to make a huge bonfire. And from that bonfire, torches would be taken to light all the, all the fires in the temples. And then from the fires in the temples, all the fires in people's homes would be renewed. So kind of a nice little bonding for the whole city at the end there. Oh, yeah, it's great. Um, of course, they're continuing to cut more people's hearts out the whole time. Mm, lovely. Tlaloc, I mentioned, was the god of rain. He was also, I think, the third or fourth son. <laughs> Um, sacrifices to Tlaloc had their hearts placed in bowls in his temple. And the bodies, instead of being burned or cannibalized, uh, these are the only ones that would be buried. Sacrifices to Tlaloc were buried dressed in paper clothes and holding spades, like gardening spades, mm -hmm. with seeds planted in their faces. Interesting. I guess so they can be part of the rebirth. Yeah. And in his yearly festival, children dressed as Tlaloc are carried to the top of a mountain by singing, dancing adults on beds of feathers and flowers. And then, of course, their hearts would be cut out. Oh, God. And this is not an Inca situation where they're being drugged with coca leaves or whatever. Yeah. Um, it was actually considered good luck in sacrifices to Tlaloc if the kids cried. Oh. So they yeah, I mean, you'd have to spin it that way or else it's just... Well, Just horror. Well, but since it was a good omen if they cried and a bad omen if they didn't, they would pick sick or injured children on purpose so <sighs> that they'd just be kind of naturally tending to cry. And then if they still weren't crying from the fear, the walk up the mountain, their general maladies, uh, the priests would sometimes apparently, or at least there's evidence of this on the victims, the priests would pull their fingernails out to <sighs> get them to start crying a little. God, Okay. So that's, but if you look at a picture of Tlaloc, uh, he looks, he looks like a, like a nice, sweet man. Um, so it's surprising. Now, <laughs> sure. Here's another, this is the cutest, I think, of the uh, Aztec gods, Carrie. Uh, and and what, it, what does it like, just babies ripped in half or something I'm at this point? I'm going to show you a little picture of Chippy Totec here. Look at that little guy. He's so sweet. Why, why is his mouth open like that in, in all the depictions of him? Is he supposed to be, like, yelling or singing? Or? I, I think he's probably getting ready to eat. Oh, boy. If I had to uh, guess. Uh, Chippy Totec is the god of rebirth and agriculture. He's also car called Our Lord Flayed. And it's said that Chippy Totec is constantly cutting off his own skin in order to feed humanity. Hmm. And when you look at this little, this cute little statue of Chippy Totec, a lot of times there's these little bubbly Like, they almost look like scales. 
Yes, they almost look like scales. What they're supposed to look like is an inside-out human skin on his body, and those are supposed to be the little corpuscles of fat inside of human flesh. Oh, my God. Um, But look how cute he is. Yeah, he is adorable. Chippy Totec's annual festival uh, happened at the spring equinox. So this was sort of Aztec Easter. Mm -hmm. And instead of an egg hunt, in each of the city wards, a captive was chosen 40 days out from the festival and dressed and honored like Chippy Totec. Which is less pleasant, probably, than the early guy who got dressed like Tezcatlipoca, because... Because um, this involves inside-out skin? Yeah, because Chippy Totec is always dressed in human skin. Uh, on day one of the festival, there was a gladiatorial ritual combat, similar to the one I described earlier. The guy's tied to big old stones, and then uh, the special forces guys come out and just kill them. Um, on festival day two, something called the Game of Canes was performed. I have no details on the game of canes, but the implication is that it's like a a mock combat, Mm -hmm. a ritual combat. They're fighting each other with canes, two kind of teams, and they would play the shirts versus skins. And by skins, I I mean, literally, one team would be wearing the flayed. (laughs) Of course, why not? Still bloody skins of the previous day's sacrifices. And then after the game was over, the team that was wearing the human skins would go trick or treating. They would knock on all the doors in the city and ask for alms or food for the love of Chippy Totec. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the cutting of hearts and flaying of skins. Great. Uh, the victims of these sacrifices would have their skins adorned with feathers and gold beads, and then the priests of Chippy Totec would wear them for the next 20 days of fertility dances. <sighs> now, by the end of 20 days, at the end of a fortnight, those skins are pretty ripe. Yeah. Uh, oh, and by the way, the flayed trick-or-treating and the mock combats are continuing this whole time, the whole 20 days. So it's a, it's a mess. It's horrific. This whole month. And then after the 20 days, the priests would finally be allowed to take these skins off and they would be sealed up in special containers. They had to invent a way to seal containers just to keep these things from, from smelling because they kept them under the temple forever. Mm-hmm. Um, sacrifices to Chippy Totec sometimes also took the arrow sacrifice form like we talked about with the Maya. Mm-hmm. But in this case, the victim would be tied to a wooden frame. And again, the goal is to make them bleed as much as possible onto the ground. Um, but they would still, the Aztecs would still make sure to go ahead and cut that heart out as well in the arrow sacrifice before the victim died. Because the Aztecs just loved, loved cutting a heart. It sounds like it, yeah. Well, I think it's about all the time we have for um, human sacrifice Ooh. here on Ain't It Scary for today, Carrie. Uh, aren't you glad that these are, and again, this is apparently an ongoing problem in Ghana with ritual murder, but in most parts of the world. Aren't you glad we've left these practices behind? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I am. Uh, what, was, uh, what was the highlight for you? Or the, the highlight? Or, or the low light? Oh, I don't know. They're all horrifying in their own ways. I think the worst ones are all obviously the the children. Um, They don't really understand what's going on. And it's, I mean, it's horrifying to kill a child, you know? So it's all bad. It's all just bad. It's all, it's not good. It's not great. Uh, Now, again, check out the upcoming little mini-sode on Patreon, because I do want to tell you about retainer sacrifices uh, and... I got to tell you, Carrie, it's not going to cheer you up anymore. Great. I'm so looking forward to it. But with that, I think we've sacrificed enough of our Friday night. You know what I mean? Friday. It's Wednesday. <laughs>
I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. No official news today. Uh, you know, we're already at time, I think. And... Um, and we're still dealing with our Thanksgiving hangover, as I'm sure a lot of people in America are right now. So things aren't too busy in the news. I did want to mention that um, part of Interstate 495 in Massachusetts is being renamed after one of the victims of the Salem Witch Trials, Susanna Martin. So that'll be uh, something that we can check out when we go visit uh, after it, it gets changed. So I think that's good. I think any memorials to those people are always a good thing. It is literally the least they can do. Literally the least they can do. And um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of the thing I wanted to mention. But that's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We sure will. Special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Ira, Kate Pope, and Haley, still holding it down in the Scary Squad. We're glad to have you all, and we love you. <laughs> we are grateful for you in this time of Thanksgiving, and we'll see you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence and give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.